It's fair to say that members of the St. Louis County Council have a lot on their plate in 2020. That includes monitoring changes in the county jail and redefining vagrancy. So to talk about the issues that are percolating around the county council chambers, we talk with Councilman Mark Harder of Baldwin on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum. And we are here with St. Louis County Councilman Mark Harder. Hi, guys. Hi. So, Councilman Harder, you actually asked Jason if you could come in today and talk to us. Why did you want did to I? talk to us? Yeah. You, you, you wrote, after I, we, I posted the last podcast, which featured a great loop trolley graphic, you, you posted on my Facebook, call me. I called you and you're like, I want to be on the podcast. There you go. There you go. So, Councilman, I know that you have strong feelings about the loop trolley. What do you want to say after last week's news that the trolley might actually finally be dead? Well, I don't know if it's fully dead. I, I think it's on life support. Um, I guess they're waiting to see if there's anyone will step up and run this uh, uh, loop trolley, uh, e- either that or come up with a new business plan for the loop trolley. Uh, this has been a thing that we've dealt with for probably over three years since the council was uh, asked to contribute $3 million to this project back, I believe it was around 17, 16-ish time. and um, Did you vote for that? No, I did not. Uh, Because at the time, the and I didn't know much about the loop trolley at that time, and and the stuff I looked into and stuff that was given to me by different people, and I looked at it and I said, how did this ever get to, how did this ever see the light of day? The numbers were off. The projections were off. Uh, the uh, the delays were almost you know monthly if you remember right uh, it was going to open about four different times uh, and it never got off the off the uh, starting block many times and so they asked for three million dollars and I tried to persuade my other council members to say this is a boondoggle we can't do this we shouldn't do this uh, but it still passed and um, I believe it might have been a uh, probably a five two vote on that one. So, um, and then everything started breaking down. Um, things were not coming together. The, they were behind schedule. It was off projections. Uh, it actually finally got up running and it uh, ran for a number of months and was way off of doing 10% of what it was projected to do. So um, this has been a boondoggle from the very beginning. And uh, I think a lot of people have now, as you've seen in Facebook and other places, uh, have come alongside this and figured this out. So why do you say it's on life support? What do you think might happen that would bring it back? Well, I think what probably would happen is someone that would see some, some value there, either in the, the equipment, the infrastructure, um, come back with a different business model, a uh, different way of doing it. Uh, and see some value in it. Now, it's not going to be $52 million worth of value, but maybe someone could uh, 
come back and and try to run it. And I think that's that was the idea for Buy State to be that manager to come in and buy the government, uh, who is ultimately on the hook for this, and the TDD, buy them some time to figure this out. Let Buy State run it on a day-to-day basis, year-to-year, figure it out uh, to see what needed to be done. I don't think they were in any kind of idea or business to improve it or expand it. It was just to keep it running because the federal government said, we got a lot of money in this, and you're the only one we think should run this. That was going to be my next question. I'm not defending the woes of the loop trolley, but some people in Buy State wanted to keep it alive because they were fearful that its failure would put other federal transportation grants in jeopardy. What's your thought on that? Well, that, that's an interesting comment because I asked that same thing to um, Talby Roach at the meeting we had last week. And because that's been thrown around almost, almost like if we don't do something, you know, we're not going to get millions later on. And I said, where is that written? Written Is that in our contract? Is that in the uh, agreements with the federal government? Nobody could point to any kind of legal document that that's the case. Uh, it's just a feeling. It's a thought. Uh, it's uh, we won't score so high in our points. And I got air quotes around that. Things like that. Uh, for the people like East West Gateway and some of these other organizations that manage these huge government grants, uh, they they see this as a black eye. So that word has been spread throughout the leadership of the region. And um, and I think uh, it was amazing the other day at the bi-state meeting. I mean, here's all these people who've heard the same stories that we've heard and weren't going to believe it. And uh, they couldn't even get a second on the uh, motion. So in fairness, I, I understand what you're saying. It's not written down, but the people at the Federal Transit Administration are humans. And if you're a human and you've given millions upon millions of dollars to a region, to a project that ran for a year, I could see where a human might say, you know what, Cleveland's a better bet. I'm going to give them money now. I mean, not all decisions are made based on rules that are written down. Do, I mean, do you not have any fear that this could impact the ability to get transit funding in the future? No, I don't. Um I mean, we've done a very good job of building bridges and building highways and and using other money. This was a bad business model from the from the very start. And the federal government needs to step up and take some responsibility uh, t- about this. Uh, they gave all the money. Um, as you know, I sponsored legislation a couple months ago to ask for a audit of the whole operation and find out where this money went, what they spend it on. And things like that, because I had a lot of people coming to me saying, you know, this shouldn't cost this much. And where did this money go? And why did they spend it here? And why did they spend it there? And when my assistant talked to FTA um, spokespersons, uh, they were saying, we're not going to do an audit uh, because we gave out money in increments and we oversaw uh, the uh, distribution of this money. So we take that as our audit. Um, and so... So they have to have some responsibility here. They have they saw the numbers from the beginning. They're the ones that approved the whole project to start with. So there has to be some responsibility, probably more so, on the federal government uh, about this project. I want to move on to another topic that's made the news recently, and that's uh, Proposition P, which was a sales tax that was passed a couple of years ago aimed at supporting county and municipal law enforcement. 
I read in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that Councilman Tim Fitch had received communication about how, I guess, too much money from Prop P had been spent, and that is going to be complicating efforts in the upcoming budget year about how to how to allocate that money. What have you heard about that issue? Well, it was good that, that uh, Councilman Fitch asked the questions, um, and he was uh, had a long time getting the answers that he wanted, but he finally did get some answers, and I brought that along with me today. Um, basically, what that fund is, it was set up back in 17, and 17 was a partial year. So we started collecting it, I believe, in 17 and 18 and 19 and so on. And it's a sales tax, uh, and it goes to specific FAR public safety. And um, I saw when we passed this, I saw a possibility here of this being supplanted or being used for other things other than what it was intended for, which was uh, raises for the police department, equipment for the police department, and training, and so on. And so as this pot of money grew, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as this pot of money grew, people started latching onto it. And as you know, Jason, from being in our meetings, people would come and say, well, we should, we deserve a raise out of this money. We deal with public safety and we do this and we do that. Yeah. And I don't blame them. I mean, if I'm a nurse in the county jail, or I guess I work in the St. Louis courts and I have a public safety function and I see a subset of employees getting significant raises when I haven't in a while, of course I'm going to do that. And frankly, the people that put Prop P forward should have foreseen that. Right. And and, and we saw this too. We and, and we saw and justified that in the case of the nurses. We gave money to the nurses that work in our jail. We gave money to the jailers uh, that work in the jail. Uh, we helped them with training. Uh, we bought uniforms. We bought body cameras for our county police. Uh, and all these things add up. And so um, and then the courts jumped in here, and the courts wanted money for, for certain portions of the court functions. So we still had money to, to deal with, but what happened is, and what will happen in the future, is that some of these commitments that we made, especially even in police raises um, and, and costs tied to contracts, those have two, three, four-year implications. So um, right now, the fund has a positive balance in there. It's the projection of what um, Paul Kreidler and others in our budget department have made is in 2020 or uh, uh, 2023, 24, and so on. That if we keep spending this way, we're going to be in a deficit situation. But there's, isn't there a large surplus fund that is in the Prop P? pot of money right now. So you're saying that in, in two or three years, you're going to have to start eating into the surplus that's there, right? No. Well, we're going to be running a deficit based on our projections of how much this tax brings in. And it's all projections. So they've been very conservative uh, saying that basically for the next five to six years, we're going to bring in about $50 million in this fund. and Per so, year. Per year. And so our spending is measured against that. So the commitments we've made to raises and uh, which are ongoing uh, with some of these contracts and the money we we're spending on body cameras and things, those are annual expenditures that will be shown against us. And, and I've got, I know you're 
listeners can't see this on radio, but I've got a spreadsheet that shows where this money is going. Um, and uh, so we're just going to have to watch it to make sure that um, maybe we'll need to cut back in the in the outlying years. Uh, or we've got to hope that the sales tax brings in more revenue than, than our projection. Looking back at Prop P in retrospect, as, as you, you voted to put Prop P on the ballot, correct? Yeah. Yes, I did. Can we maybe concede that maybe this was an example of like not the best policymaking given that you know, it caused all these other employees to ask for raises. It caused other jurisdictions around St. Louis County to raise their sales taxes because it, they wanted to prevent like a brain drain too. And we were not even touching the concept of how because the municipal money is divvied out by population, it's going to larger and wealthier municipalities as opposed to poorer municipalities that are smaller but may have high crime rate. It's a long way of saying was Prop P really a good idea in retrospect? I think so. I think if you think back around 2016, 2015, uh, we were losing police officers every pay period. Uh, they were going to St. Charles. They were going outside the area where they were getting more money. Um, they were um, retiring at a huge rate. Uh, we lost a lot of police officers after Ferguson that said, I'm, I'm out. Uh, so we were in a in a big drain, and the city of St. Louis the same way, and some of the municipals were in the same way. And so to get that money, we had no money to give for raises for anyone, police or otherwise. So to get that money, uh, the people of, of St. Louis County voted to allow this to happen and, and to tax themselves in this way. But they wanted to make sure this money went to public safety, which is what it was designed for. If there was a regret that I had, I wish I would have pushed for more um, uh, specificity when it comes to where this money should have gone. I think it was done um, generic enough because we didn't know where we were going to go with this. We knew we were going to use it for raises, but we've also bought uh, extra police cars or replacement police cars, not extra police cars. We bought body cameras. And as you know from being in our council meetings in the last couple of uh, months, you know, we finally, after everything that happened in Ferguson, after passing Prop P, we finally just signed a contract for body cameras. So these things take years to come together. And that was a big thing out of Ferguson is we need to have body cameras. Well, when you do that, first off, it's very expensive. And then you multiply it by 900 officers. It's a very expensive endeavor just for that one item. We're going to take a quick break before we come back and talk about um, panhandling in the county and a couple other issues. And we're back with Councilman Mark Harder talking about St. Louis County politics. Um, Councilman, I have a question. So in the last couple weeks, uh, panhandling basically has come up a lot. Uh, it sounds like the county council, or I'm sorry, the county counselor has told the county council that some changes need to be made to vagrancy laws in St. Louis County that a judge may have said they were unconstitutional. Um, and this is all kind of stemming from a lawsuit um, brought by a man who... Uh, asked for money at at least one intersection, at least Interstate 55 in Lindbergh, although he may ask for money elsewhere. He sued the county for ticketing him um, for for asking for money, and it, it sounds like he thinks that maybe he's he's his rights are being violated. So what, what do you make of all this? Councilwoman 
uh, Clancy has sponsored legislation to change the vagrancy laws, uh, basically changing the definition of what vagrancy is, which basically does away with the whole definition, which means that she wants to decriminalize the whole act of vagrancy. And our vagrancy laws, which are back from the 60s on our books, uh, has language in there that's probably archaic yeah, let, uh, let's, and needs to be changed. Not, but. To, not to interrupt, but I do need to point out how archaic this is. Some of the definitions are every person without visible means of support who may be fine loitering around houses of ill fame, gambling houses, or places where liquor is sold or drunk. I mean, that could be people that get drunk at the LeMay Casino, and they could be guilty of vagrancy. Every person who shall attend or operate any gambling device or apparatus, well, if Missouri legalizes sports betting on their phone, and if they're just like fiddling around on their phone and gambling on the street, well, they could be guilty of vagrancy. And this is my favorite. Every person found tramping or wandering about from place to place without any visible means of support. I I would say that even maybe you would argue are are a bit antiquated. Oh, sure. Sure. And and. And this is the problem with things that haven't been changed in a long time, and they probably need to be be, uh, be changed, and the language, of course, needs to be changed. But that doesn't do away with the whole issue of vagrancy. And what, what happens and what's been explained to me by our law enforcement is that we have very few tickets um, for vagrancy. Uh, vagrancy is an issue that, that people will call in about. They'll say someone's hanging out at the street corner, um, they're, you know, impeding traffic or whatever. And so the police show up uh, and they do some investigation. Uh, if vagrancy is the only thing that they're doing um, uh, based on this uh, old definitions, uh, it's probably not a big deal. But usually what happens is that then that spurs other things where uh, all the police want to happen is to have this person move on and to comply and not do this. And usually what happens is then you'll find out the person has warrants or the person is trespassing or the person has got other issues uh, that they're dealing with. And, uh, and that could lead to either more summons or maybe a call for help to get this person some help. Um, so having this on the books, any type of vagrancy or panhandling is a tool that can be used uh, to fight crime as well as to um, enforce the uh, the peace. Right. It should be said that the man who is suing the county for being ticketed says, I think he's received like dozens of tickets. Like, mm-hmm. And he says he's been ticketed for the for violating the vagrancy ordinance with which Jason just read a part of like eight times. So he there are some people who are being ticketed for this. But I, I take your point. So what do you think is the solution? So clearly you don't think that Lisa Clancy's solution of just like, you know, getting rid of the vagrancy uh, language as it is and then not replacing it with anything is is the right way to go. What do you think should be done? I think uh, what has to be done is we need to look at how law enforcement uses this rule and how uh, we can change the language to these type of rules. Uh, Councilman Trachis has uh, put together a competing bill. He tried to submit it last week as a substitute bill to the bill on the table. Uh, that was voted down. So he has proposed it tonight. It will be a as a standalone bill. And in that bill, he's got language that actually addresses the issues that vagrancy has been 
purposely vague about. It talks about uh, people with, that are actually panhandling, that people that are being aggressive to other people because of the panhandling. It talks about uh, solicitation that is uh, not welcome solicitation. It's uh, blocking or interfering with traffic. Uh, it's giving people safe passage on the sidewalk, things like that, uh, acting in a violent way um, and being aggressive, things like that. Language that actually addresses actually what they've used the vagrancy law for in the past, but this is more specific. But it also protects their right of free speech so that if they are protesting you know, a political candidate on a street corner, they're protected. Um, but if they're out there panhandling and being aggressive to people and coming up to cars and knocking on windows and things like that, that would be seen as a as an aggressive way of panhandling. Isn't there already laws in the county ordinances against impeding traffic? And if somebody is panhandling in the middle of the street, couldn't you use that to get them out of the street as opposed to writing an entirely new law? That's a good question. Um, we'll have to. That's a question for our legal team to see if that is uh, out there. I think what he wanted to do in this legislation is to kind of bring it together. Uh, there may be some of these things already in codified in our ordinances, and this way it kind of brings it together in one ordinance. Couldn't you make an argument that asking for money is an act of free speech? I guess somebody probably could. Um, people ask for donations for political candidates. Uh, people ask, ask for donations to, you know, save the whales or whatever it may be. So, yes, I, depending on what they're doing, it, it is what it is. But uh, we've had an issue in St. Louis County, and especially at the intersection of Lindbergh and 55. Uh, there is some professional panhandlers that come into this area, and I've had them in my district at Manchester and Sulphur Springs, where they'll bring in a busload of folks, drop them off at various intersections throughout the county, and spend a Saturday panhandling in that area, and then come back and pick them all up and take money and do whatever with. So one more thing I wanted to talk to you about before we let you go. In the last week, there's been a lot of questions about whether the jail is being very transparent. I mean, these questions have been going on for months, but specifically the Justice Services Advisory Board that was stood up recently to kind of uh, provide some oversight of the jail. Uh, the members last week got very upset because they felt like the jail wasn't being very forthcoming about what happened to a man who died while he was in custody in December. Do you have any concerns about what's going on at the at the jail? Issues at the jail have been an ongoing problem um, for the last couple of years. Um, and I think we're in a, probably a better spot today than we were a year ago. Uh, we have a actually a, a, a committee of citizens now that actually meets and deals with the issues in the jail before. That, that never happened under the previous administration and even the first part of uh, the Page administration. Uh, people didn't even know they had this citizen um, board that oversaw the ap operations of the jail. So now they're at least, they have new members. Uh, the people are very um, interested in taking care of the jail and what's going on there. We have a new jail director that we brought in from Texas uh, that has uh, about 30 years of experience in running all different size jails and uh, very seems to be very competent. He's been on the job only a couple months. So there's going to be some growing pains there on how they get along and work together. Unfortunately, we had a death around Christmas time. 
uh, there. Uh, they handled it the way the protocols that they designed were to handle this. Uh, the person died two days later in in a hospital, local hospital. So the things they're doing, um, they're trying to do, when you're trying to supervise a population of about 900 people uh, in that jail, uh, people are going to get sick. Uh, these people come to us sick. Uh, it is, uh, it's like having a cruise ship of 90-year-old people. You're going to have some deaths in there. And that's not to... to um, give them a pass, but it's the nature of the population. It's a very unique population, and a lot of these people have come here with chronic diseases. They come here with drug-related drug uh, diseases. Uh, they, they have who, uh, just unbelievable um, uh, amount of complications when it comes to health issues. And so now, since they're in our custody, we have to take care of them as best we can. Uh, can we predict whether they have cancer or not? There's no way unless we're going to do CT scans uh, on every inmate. Um, but they do get sick sometimes. We do try to treat them. And that's what the new director has been focused on is a protocol to make sure that, that they get this, the, um, the treatment they need when, when they need it. I think that the issue with the latest death in the jail is that the Page administration put out information about what happened and the cellmate of the person that died had completely different recollections of what actually happened. As a council member, do you have any concerns that there may be, again, conflicting information and, and mixed messaging going on when a death in a jail happens? I think you're going to have a lot of different messages out there. Uh, someone that is... Um, uh, in this situation, it's going to have a little bit different story. Uh, you also have to consider the source. You have to look at where the information's coming from. How believable is it? Do they have an axe to grind with the with the administration or with the um, the jail itself? Uh, both of these uh, inmates were there three and four years, which is that's a whole different story that we can talk about that I've had uh, with the jail system. But um, they shouldn't be there that long. But at the same time, they've been there that long. There's issues. People get sick. Uh, they should be treated when they do get sick. Um, but you can't watch every person and, and make sure that, you know, they are okay every minute of the day. They try to and try to look for, you know, issues uh, throughout the day. But uh, uh, someone that has a chronic illness, that's going to come on over a long period of time. They should be paying attention to that. Uh, as it happens. So hopefully they'll put in new procedures, new policies that will make sure that we can minimize that. But if you look across the jail population throughout the world and, and in the United States, people die in jail. That is a normal thing. And so um, we just have to minimize that in any jail that we had. I believe there was a um, another jail locally uh, in the uh, rural areas, they had a death. So it, it happens. And, you know, what's really, and this would be another story for your for your podcast, is we found out that no one keeps track of the deaths in jails. There's, you know, of all the stats that you can get out there on government operations and, and police operations and all that type of thing, no one keeps track of how many people die in a certain jurisdiction jail are in holding or in detention or anything like that. And I thought that's kind of odd um, why that is and, and the reasons behind that death. There's no recording of that. And 
Uh, so that's something that uh, might be an interesting follow-up story for you. I have one more question on this, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you said protocol was followed. How do you know the protocol was followed? Because I think some of the question is, there are questions about what happened There's because there's some discrepancies. And then also just like there are no reports when these deaths ha- have happened, including the most recent one. Well, there are reports. Unfortunately, and as you've seen being in our meetings, um, these things take time when there's an investigation. And once there's a investigation, everybody goes silent because we, they don't know what they don't know at this point. Uh, the big thing that holds up these inv- investigations are toxicology reports. And we see that across the whole uh, judicial system. Um, you know, you think someone is guilty of such and such, but until the toxicology comes back, nobody knows. And then it comes back and points uh, suspicion in a whole different direction uh, when it does come back, and it could be months later. And when you're a family member of someone that's, in a, say, in this case, a jail, and you're trying to figure out why your son or daughter died, you know, every day you're waiting for that information. And unfortunately, the system that we have throughout um, – the medical field is toxicology takes sometimes months, and they will not close a de- close an investigation until that toxicology comes back. They can do an autopsy in 24 hours, and they can do some minor testing, but until the toxicology comes back and finds out what did that person exactly die from, uh, they will not close that investigation, which means the information will not be shared with anyone, uh, the public or the family members or anything else. And, and people see that gap of, of, of no information as someone's, someone's hiding something, someone's covering up something. And that's unfortunate. And that comes along with how we handle these and how the personal aspect of handling these issues comes to play. And in the past, the personal aspect of actually talking to family members and consoling them and uh, giving them information when you do have it has been severely lacking. And that's why I'm hoping that this new uh, director of, um, of justice services will, um, will have that personal touch and be able to keep family members and those involved in this decision and in this situation informed as we go um, to their satisfaction. Before we let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a political question. Last time you were on the show, I asked you if you were thinking of running for county executive as a Republican this year. Have you made a decision on that? No, I haven't. Okay. When do you think you'll make that decision? Um, i meeting with some folks, but uh, and people have met with me, but I haven't made a decision at this point. All right. Well, we're not breaking news on this podcast on that front. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Councilman Harder, for coming in. Uh, We hope you'll listen to us later this week when we release our weekly news roundup. To read stories from Jason and me, please go to stlpublicradio.org. Thanks so much. Looking forward to having you back next time.